Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Thanks, thank you. I think I'm with Blake, you know, we should have a, an impartation line sometime for, for rhythm. Like, like, we should definitely get all the black people to come and pray for us white folk so that we would actually have some rhythm. That would be, that would be great, you know? They could hardly contain themselves up in the sound booth during that. They were like, yeah. Some, some years ago, I, I went to... Um, Gosh, where did I? Oh, it was Dallas. I was in Dallas. And Ron Canoli was there on the Sunday night. And, uh, and the pastor that I was with, a super, super sweet man, um, said, look, I've, I've really been honored by this whole black community in, uh, in Dallas. And, uh, and they've invited me. I'm one of, the sort of the, this sort of group of pastors um, to go and, and to... I think he was opening the prayer at this Ron Canoli event. You know, it was a Sunday night. And... Uh, and basically, there was David Dyke and me and a room full of just people who have a lot of rhythm, you know, and uh, a lot of rhythm. And Ron Canoli started wandering around with the microphone, and he did the unthinkable. He put the microphone in front of me because he was trying to get people to sing these various parts of songs. And it's like, I mean, I can't dance, but I also can't sing. That's the problem. So the whole thing was very embarrassing. But my wife and I, every year... Um, Years ago, uh, we had this season where we'd always go to an Andre Crouch concert in London, and uh, he'd come over once a year, and and we'd go along to that, and uh, we just uh, we just absolutely adore that sound. There's no question, but I don't have the impartation for it, which is real strange. So if if we had a fire tunnel sometime just for rhythm, that would be good, like a rhythm tunnel. That would be what it would be. Yeah. Anyway, so well, it's good to be back here. Um, Sue and I. This is kind of family uh, to us. We just love being around you guys and um, just seeing new people coming and stories and growth and life and all those things. So we just, we just love being here. It's a little strange this year. We've got a day off tomorrow. Never, never experienced that before. Go on, invited on a trip and you get Sunday off. That's, like, that's, like, that, that's, just, uh, that's a new experience. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, so, and yeah, just good to be here. Just good to be here. Just, it just feels a very easy, relaxed place. Well, as you can see, there's some chairs up here. Um, it's a little, it'll, little risky doing this in the house where Leif Hetland goes to church, but, um, and, uh, but, I, but I have a three chairs message, and uh, he knows. He knows about it. It's okay, and it's not the same as his, but, and I thought I was going to preach it in front of him when I was in Norway, but um, I was all ready to do it, and then the pastor said, you know, we're at this season, and we'd really love it if you teach this particular message, so I did. I didn't preach the three chairs, and Leif did tell me he's watched it on Bethel TV. So, I've got his endorsement and his blessing, and he's a good friend of mine. So, and uh, I call this message really something along the lines of my gospel. And um, the first time I thought about it, I thought, "Gosh, that's a bit risky calling it that." And then I, then reading up on it, I realized that the Apostle Paul had a my gospel. He said, "My gospel," and, and my gospel isn't my version of of what's right about the Bible. My gospel is, as it were, the working out of the gospel through my life. And, and every one of us should have a my gospel. 
because the gospel means good news. So we should have my good news. We should have my announcement of the way that God has, has worked through my life. And, you know, the gospel is, is by its very nature, the gospel is, is a past, a present, and a future. It's by its very nature. By its very nature, the gospel is, is prophetic. It's, it, it takes us from a past into the present and into the future. It's just its very nature is prophetic. You know, the, sometimes I think we make the prophetic uh, kind of this bolt-on part of the Christian life, but actually the Christian life is, is prophetic. It, it just is by its very nature. Um, I mean, in reality, you know, God lives out of time, so um, he's, he lives outside of time. So he is in the past, the present, and the future. And uh, the gospel is, is one of those words Jesus borrowed from the culture of the day, and uh, it very simply means good news. And in the culture of the day, there would have been a, a, a time when there would have been a gospel announcement. It actually would have been either on the king's birthday or, or typically when the king came back from war with the gospel announcement. Of course, you know, if he didn't come back, if he lost the war, he wouldn't have come back. So if he came back, it, it, the fact that he was there was good news. He, he survived. And really, it, it looks a bit like this. It, it's... Basically, the king would stand and say, the enemy's been defeated. We've been set free from the, the tyranny of the past. That's good news. The enemy's been defeated. Therefore, we will have a better today. And not only that, I can promise you a better tomorrow. It's, it's the very nature of, of the gospel. And, and really, that's the announcement that we have in our lives. The enemy in our lives has been defeated. Because of that, we have a better today. And because of that, we have a promise of a better tomorrow. And, and that's really the nature, and every one of us should have a my gospel. But as, and every one of us has come in here. You've come in here tonight in reality. You've come in here with a history, with a past, personal, corporate, national history. And, and really what we should do is be able to embrace our history so that we can stand on our history, so that we can change or make history. I think it's Churchill, yeah, it's Churchill that's quoted. He says, history will be kind to me for I shall write it. Which is pretty cool. And he did. He actually got the Nobel Peace Prize for, uh, Nobel Prize for Literature. So he prophesied his own award, actually. Not many, it's incredible that he did that. I don't know where he found the time to write as much as he did. I, I struggle myself. But anyway, that's another story. And so the gospel. But I, what I've noticed is, you see, see, all of us have this past. All of us have a history. I mean, you know, our national history. This applies, this message applies to people, to churches, to regions, and to nations. We all have a history. But here's what happens. See, we have this past. But if we're not careful... The greatest enemy of our testimony, our victories of our past is regret. And we find ourselves thinking of the could have, should have, why didn't I? We find ourselves dismissing our past. You see, the reality of, of, of everyone's life is, and this is the most obvious thing, but it's sometimes the obvious escapes us. The present is the only place I can do anything from. It's the only place I can act from. And actually being present has become one of the greatest challenges of our day because we're so easily distracted but there are so many things to distract us. You know, I, I say, and uh, I'm still fighting it, but I'm, I'm getting better gradually, little by little. The greatest enemy in my marriage is not drugs, not alcohol, not uh, other women. The greatest enemy of my marriage is my iPhone. 
because it distracts me, removes me from being present. And I can be dumb enough to be Facebook messaging somebody the other side of the world who I've never met while I'm on a date with my wife who I've covenanted my life to. I'm just being honest. And the silence tells me that some of you feel the same pain. (laughs) But I am getting gradually better. I'm working on it. So being present. You see, being present is the only place I can do anything from. You know, Scripture says that God is a very present help in time of trouble. See, our God is present. I, I, I love worship, and, uh, and I, I, I agree with Steve about the worship in this house. I, I love worship. Sometimes, though, I, I've heard people say that the purpose of the worship team is to usher in the presence of God. I actually don't believe that's true. He's already present purpose of the worship teams to usher in the presence of the people so that they can experience the presence of God. So that we're present. See, being present is the only place I can do anything from. But here's the problem. If I am in regret, instead of being able to pull my past, pull my testimonies, pull my victories into the present and stand on them, instead of being present, my head's over here. I'm in regret. And I'm thinking what I could have done, should have done, ought to have done, wish I'd done. I'm beating myself up for the things that I failed in, the mistakes I made, and I'm living in regret. And if I'm not careful, my regrets cloud my memory of the past. And in reality, I can end up with a past without victory or value because all I can think of is regret. You see, the testimony of Jesus is actually the spirit of prophecy that I'm meant to take the victories, the successes, the testimonies of my past into my present, and they are meant to feed my future and other people's future. To imagine a past without victory or value is a lie because every one of us has victory and value in our past. You know, this is what I, I, God does this. I, my little pet phrase of life is, he wastes nothing, he gets you ready. There's not one thing in your past that he, that he will waste You see, he'll redeem the lows and he will repeat the highs. It's who he is. All things work together for good to those that love God and accord according to his purpose. So every one of us has a past with victory and value, but regret will cloud our memory. And we won't be able to remember the victories and the value because we'll be criticizing ourselves, blaming ourselves. We'll be in regret. We'll be thinking of what I could have, what I should have. You see... We have to live from a place of the present chair. But if we allow our heads over here, we're in trouble. I, I tell a story, I'll make it very short. I went to the 2014 Soccer Football World Cup. England, it was a disaster. We were terrible. But I went with my youngest son, and, and he wanted, before the trip, he wanted to go to Rio. He said, I want to go to Rio, Dad. I want to see that statue, Christ the Redeemer. So Sue, who was organizing our travel, rearranged our travel and, and worked for us to go to Rio. Luke and I had a wonderful time at at Rio. I mean, the whole trip was a trip of a lifetime, even though England were terrible. But it was a trip of a lifetime. And I I made a promise to him. I said, as far as it's down to me, we'll go to the World Cup every four years until I die. There's something about that trip, and we have got tickets for a game in Russia, I'm pleased to say. It's a lot easier to get to Russia from England as well, which is also important. (laughs) Why, Why do I tell this story? You see, because if I hadn't gone to Rio... Every time I thought about Brazil, I'd have thought of what we didn't do. It's just a silly, simple example. But many of us live our lives like that, and we, we think of what we didn't do, what we should have done, what we could have done, and we live in regret. And instead of being in this chair, 
Our head is over here in this chair in regret. And regret is to have a life without victory or value. But then there's the future. And the future, the future contains our, our prophetic destiny. Whether it's through prophetic words or whether it's through the word of God or whether it's through dreams or whether it's through our inheritance, all of us have a prophetic destiny. All of us have a future. But here's the problem. Fear is the greatest enemy of your prophecy. Fear of the future. You see, fear, as Chris Vallotton says, is to imagine a future without God in it. See, the prophetic word is, is not just a prophetic word. If we all remembered this when we prophesy, it, it would, it, it's a sobering thought, I'd have to say. See, a prophecy isn't so much a prophetic word, but an encounter with a God who knows your future. It's an encounter. It's, it's God going, I've seen your future. I've seen what you look like. And he comes back and whispers in our ear. But a fear of the future will cancel the power of our prophecies. It's imagining a future without God in it, but he's already been there and seen it. One of the challenges, just part of my, my learning journey is this, that sometimes we get a prophetic word and we look at the world around us and we think, how can that possibly be? It's because the world isn't ready for your word to happen. You have to walk your journey forwards while the world, as it were, and circumstances move forward and, and they converge on each other. And sometimes we look at the circumstances and we think that's impossible. And so fear, as it were, kicks in and we begin to cancel out the power of the prophecy, the power of the prophecy to take us forward. Sue and I are walking through a scenario of just being walking through it. We were given a word in 2013 that our whole family would live in the same town together. It was impossible when it was given. There was no question. It was not possible. It wasn't going to happen. But the middle of last year, our youngest son said that he and his wife, Larissa, were going to start a European adventure and they wanted to come and live in England. There were lots of hurdles and stuff around that. And uh, we knew that he would need a job. We'd have to find a bigger house. We had to end up... Well, Sue really did it, importing a Doberman, which is not an easy thing to do from America. It's a little pricey too. But she kept on saying this. He prophesied, so he has a plan. And, and you see, it cancels the fear. We walked through that. And last Monday, our son started a job, a job that God provided. We couldn't have made it happen. It wasn't possible. A better job than I would have dreamed of. Better job than I would have come up with. You see, fear, fear is very often related to your destiny. It's as if the enemy overhears the plans that God has for you and he does the opposite. He goes, let's put that in place. Let's, let's just counter that by making them afraid. Oh, they're meant to be in public speaking? I'll make them afraid of public speaking. They're meant to fly around the world? I'll make them afraid of flying. And fear ends up cancelling the power of the prophetic destiny. And fear is to imagine a future without God in it. And he's in it because he visited it. He looked at it. He saw it and he came back and whispered in your ear and said, it looks like this. You see, we're meant to sit in the present and be able to allow the prophetic to pull us forward and even to shape us in the present. And we're, we're meant to sit in the present and have the power of the testimony, the victory, spurring us on and giving us confidence and authority. So we're meant to sit here and allow these things to happen. Some people have been asking me a lot. Somebody asked me after the first service. So I just dropped this in. They said, you know, do you have any wisdom about working with prophetic words? You know, how, 
How do you know what to do and what not to do? And I, I've just given it. It's a very simple illustration. I, I think it helps some people. Sometimes we get a prophetic word and it's like, oh, what am I meant to do and what am I meant to not do? And I just use this. It's an extreme example. But imagine I prophesied to Steve you know, when he was 25 that he would be a doctor. But not just any doctor. He'd be the doctor to the king of Saudi Arabia. Why do I use that example? He has to train to be a doctor. That's what he has to do. The king of Saudi Arabia, he can't make that happen. He does what he has to do. But he asks God and discerns, what can I do? And what do I just have to leave to you? Uh, It's just a simple illustration. But I think sometimes it's good just to be able to go, okay, I can't do that. But I can do that. I can train as a doctor today. And I'll trust that somehow I'll meet the king of Saudi Arabia at the right time in the right way. But you see, so there's regret. Regret cancels the power of the testimony. gives me a past without victory or value. Fear cancels the power of the prophecy. And it's me imagining a future without God in it. But another one of the things that keeps us from the chair is that some of us are behind the chair. Living in comparison and shame. Behind the chair. It's what happened to Adam in the garden. God said to Adam, where are you? Where are you? God knew. That wasn't the issue. Adam didn't. It's Adam who didn't know where he was. God knew where Adam was. Adam, where are you? Adam, who told you you were naked? Who told you to cover up? You see, shame and comparison, they, they keep us from being present. I, I use this example, and people who know Bill, it's, it's more enjoyable to give, but imagine I, I came here tonight and I thought, well, Bill hasn't been to Bethel and Anta for a few years. I got a feeling they'd rather have Bill than Paul. So I decide to be Bill. So I stand uncomfortably close to the edge of the stage. <laughs> I hold my iPad and I tell jokes. I pause for long moments and I drop these bombs of heaven on earth that you cannot tweet quick enough. <laughs> Here's the deal. You get a really bad Bill and you don't get me. You see, shame is what many people live their lives through. They end up trying to be someone else. They end up hiding and trying to be someone else. And shame and comparison gives me a present without me in it. See, regret will give me a past without victory or value. Fear will give me a future without God in it. And shame and comparison will give me a present without me in it. I've spent ton of my life comparing myself to other people I've not won one of those fights in my head yet some of you are the same it's like so I decided to try and stop quitting that game see shame tells you what you're not keeps you from the one voice that can tell you who you are shame tells you you're second class you're not as valuable you're not as significant shame tells you that You know, your job is not as valuable. I have a very good friend of mine. He's a doctor. I I was privileged to be involved in changing his life with one statement. Surgery is not a second-class healing. He said it changed his life. Up until that moment, he felt second-class. Up until that moment, he came to church on Sundays. He heard a a testimony where somebody was possibly healed of cancer because their pain levels went down. And he would go to work for the rest of the week beating himself up. And yet every week, 5, 10, 15 people's lives were saved by him. But he didn't feel as 
special as somebody who laid hands on the sick. See, shame tells you a bunch of lies. And the goal is to be present. It's the only place I can do anything from. To bring the power of my testimonies into the present. To be pulling, as it were, on the future. Shaping my life so that I can step into my prophetic destiny. And not only that, that I take the testimonies of the past. And as it says in Revelation, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That my past prophesies into my future. Before I come back to that, I'm going to minister in a moment. I just want to talk about one other thing before I do that. And it's, it's related. And it's this. Your greatest leadership challenge, whoever you are, and you're all leaders. If you're a Christian, you're a leader. You're leading. You might be leading your kids in the home, or you might be leading a nation, but you're leading. Your greatest leadership challenge is not the most difficult person in your team. It isn't. It's not the most difficult person in your congregation. It's not the financial problems. It's not that the building's falling apart. Your most difficult leadership challenge is quite simply this, leading you. Or me leading me. It's the greatest challenge, leading me. And I, I've just began to break this down into a few areas. And they're related to the past, the present, and the future. The first one is this, believing my story. Do you believe your story? It's really easy to believe our stories when we come here with microphones and we tell them. And we tell them a lot so we get confident in telling our stories. But do you believe your story? Not Bill Johnson's, Danny Silk's, or Billy Graham's, or Reinhard Bonnke's. Your story. You see, the task of life isn't to believe someone else's story. It's to believe your story. And belief is actually related to trust. You see, if I believe something, I trust something. So if you believe your story, you trust your story. You trust, as it were, the hand of God on your life. Now, we're privileged. We tell our stories a lot. So I encourage you. Why don't you tell your story? Take note of your story. Remember some dates. Start writing them down. Start taking note of how God's worked through your story. I've often said something like this. and it, I have faith for healing. I'm going to minister healing in a minute. I have faith for healing, but I've often said this. You can stand in front of me sick, and I have faith for you to be healed. But you stand in front of me, and you want prayer for your destiny. I have faith for that. Why? Because I've watched him work through my life taking me step by step from a call of ministry to training as a nurse to working in prison. I watched him use every one of those steps. So I believe my story. I, I believe in the way that God, as, as it were, has his hand on our lives and, and weaves our destiny. So I believe my story. I want to challenge you, do you believe your story? Sue was healed 30 years ago of infertility. We have a story. The story of being healed of infertility and giving us our second son, Luke. It's our story. The last 10 years, we've prayed for countless people who've been infertile. And we've seen many, many people end up having babies. Some extraordinary stories, even in the last few weeks. People who are 11, 12, 13 years waiting for a baby. People who've had six or seven IVF treatments. People in their early 40s. We actually even saw one lady in her 50s, which was an egg donor. It's an extraordinary story. She had healed of multiple sclerosis years before and ended up having an egg donor fertilized by her husband's sperm and carried that baby at 51 years of age. We have faith for this. Why? Because we believe our story. You see, when you believe your story, it's where your authority comes from. When you believe, when you trust your story, it's where your authority comes from. 
It, and this world needs to see a church, Christians with authority. But I do want to stop a minister because this is really important to us that we, we do this, especially in places that we consider family, which is here. Because we know the pain of infertility. We've walked that journey. It's painful. The highs and the lows. In England tomorrow, it's Mother's Day. My wife taught me on Mother's Day. Whenever you're ministering on Mother's Day, never, never forget the pain of those that are trying for babies and are struggling on Mother's Day. Some years ago, I did that in Bethel. There was a lady passing through, just happened to be in church on Mother's Day. She came to the church again about three months later and said, I'd only been to Bethel once. I just happened to be there on Mother's Day and I got pregnant that day. She came. If you're struggling with infertility, I want to invite you to stand. There's anyone in here, this second service. There were a lot in the first service. If you are wannabe grandparents, in other words, you have kids that can't get pregnant, I want you to stand. We have a testimony of a couple in our church we go to Sunday mornings who stood for their grandchildren and we just got the report that those children are now pregnant. If you have a close colleague at work or a close friend that you are willing to not just stand for but lay hands on. We have seen so many people get pregnant. And when it's family, it feels personal. And this church feels personal. It feels like to come back here and, and to hear the report. Somebody just brought their little baby up to us earlier on and said, two years ago, you prayed for us. You know, I'm not saying it's about us. But on the other hand, I am saying it's about us. There's that great tension of, of the power of God working through us. And we're in awe and we are so grateful. And uh, because we've seen so much, we've just decided we're not going to stop. So, Father, I ask that everyone standing would conceive carry, deliver healthy full-term babies or those that they're representing. Father, you've done this before. Please do it again. Please do it again. Please do it for this beautiful couple. They would conceive, carry, deliver healthy full-term babies. I pray that you would cancel the injustice that is almost being held against them through this journey and that you would release them even this day to conceive, carry, deliver healthy full-term babies. Your healing power. Cancel anything that gets in the way. Endometriosis. Cancel endometriosis, polycystic ovary syndrome, any incompatibility between man and woman, any lack of eggs, any low sperm counts. Take care of this, Jesus. I, I just hear you saying it matters to... It matters to you, it matters to him. Almost feel sometimes we can get to a place where we wonder if it matters. Cancel those words that I know even Sue heard where somebody said to her once, well, at least infertility is not killing you. I know my wife basically said it feels like it is. It matters to you, it matters to him. Father, I pray, take care of this. Take care of this. They would conceive, carry, deliver healthy, full-term babies. He's bottled your tears. Psalmist says he's bottled your tears. Take care of this, Jesus, I pray. Thank you, Jesus. Take care of this, Jesus. Just raise your hand if you're just standing for you. 
for you to get pregnant. I know these two couples are here. Is there anyone else that was standing for you? Sue just felt we should make sure we lay hands. If you're standing just for you, that we should just lay hands on you specifically. I just want to make sure we take care of that. Yeah, you may be seated. He's so good, you know. So it was a, there's a fascinating story we just we just received, and uh, kind of it's one of those ones that my analytical brain can't quite get its head around. But there's a lady in a meeting, and she said she didn't stand because she didn't want to get pregnant, which is extraordinary faith in its own right. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, she had a, a tumor, like a fibroid, 10-pound fibroid tumor. And uh, so she didn't stand, but she kind of received the prayer because we were praying for, obviously, reproductive organs. She went home and weighed herself, and, and uh, she was 10 pounds lighter when she went home and weighed herself. She had no, no more cysts, and it's like, God, I, I don't know how you work. I just am in awe of how you work. So You believe your story. It's where your authority comes from. There is an authority being released to you through this. Real strong authority being released to you. Yeah. So when we believe our story, it's where our authority comes from. But then in the present, how well do you know you? Like if you employ somebody to work for you, you interview them, you know what they can do. So you know, send John in to do that. But sometimes we don't know ourselves. See, when you know yourself, you know what to send you in for. You know what to send, job to send you in to do. When you know you, it's where your confidence comes from. See, I, I believe this. I believe the world is looking for a church with authority and with confidence. I just challenge you to get to know you. Kind of do a quick check of how well you qualify for the job you're currently doing. And, and just kind of review it because what will actually happen is it, you'll see the confidence you have. Sometimes I get around people and it's like the thing that they're the best at, they're struggling in their heads to believe they're good at. It's almost that, that thing happens. And I think sometimes we just need to take like an inventory of, of our lives and review. You know, there are some things I know I can do and I, I think I struggle a lot of my life to have confidence in those things. And, and now I, I find it's like, no, I, I know I can do that. I'm, I'm the guy to come and help you with that. Let me, let me do that. I'm, I'm no good at that, but I can do that. See, when you know yourself, it's where your confidence comes from. I remember I was working in a particular prison. I'd been promoted six months before, and I'd spent six months in a prison that had no prisoners because it was a new prison. It's the perfect prison. No prisoners. Perfect. <laughs> there was no problems in that prison. But when it opened, I was, I was actually, for the first time, I was actually acting at the grade I'd been promoted to because before that, I was just running an office. And I remember walking down the corridor one day in this maximum security prison and, and thinking, I'm the governor this weekend. I'm in charge. I have to walk through every door with the confidence that, I, that somebody said, you can do that. Because otherwise, people would run rings around me, especially in a prison. Trust me, that happens. You have to have that. So I, when you know yourself, it's where your confidence comes from. The other thing about the present is, how well do you manage you? And by manage, see, I, I like the fivefold. I really believe in the fivefold a lot. Body, soul, spirit, wallet, relationship. It's the fivefold. It's the five key areas of your life that you need to be managing yourself in. How well are you managing you? See, if I'm up here counseling somebody in an area where I've not got victory and I'm telling them how to live their life, I'm a hypocrite. Because there's a gap between what I say and what I do. You see, when I manage me, it's where my integrity comes from. And I do believe this. I believe the world is looking for believers who have integrity. 
You know, Jesus said it. He said it more than once. He said, if you don't believe me, believe my works. In other words, check it out. There's no gap between what I say and what I do. I, I, I mean, it's staggering. I remember Bill once saying, you know, imagine the day that the church will announce to the world. If you don't believe what we say, check out our works. We're raising the dead, healing the sick. There's no gap with Jesus between what he said and what he did. Authority, confidence, integrity. And do you know where you're going? Habakkuk 2. Write the vision that he who reads it may run with it. You see, if you don't know where you're going, you don't have any followers. And a leader without any followers is merely a man taking a walk. It's an old phrase, but it's true. See, where are you going? It's where your followers come from. The world is looking for a church with authority, confidence, integrity, and followers. It really is. I just challenge you in those areas. Because it's about leading you. And leading you really is this gospel story. Leading you from your past to your present to your future. But I just want to minister a little bit. And start over here. See, when I started to talk about regret, some of you thought, that's me. I struggle with regret. That's where my head is. I struggle to be present because my head's over here in the past, filled with regret. That's you. I want to invite you to stand. There's really good news. The Apostle Paul talked about something. He talked about a repentance without regret. What's repentance? Repentance is changing the way you think. The problem is that too often in the church, we thought about repentance as being repenting from sin. It's only half the story. If that microphone stand there is sin, we repent from sin. But the truth is, if we only repent from sin, we only get to looking that way. The Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned, but fallen short of the glory. We're meant to repent from sin, but unto glory. You see, the problem is, if we don't fully repent, our peripheral vision can still see that sin. We can still see it because we haven't fully turned away. We need to repent not just from sin, but unto glory. You see, there's a repentance without regret. There's a repentance where I've not got that sin in my peripheral vision, and I repent. We don't have to get it all right in one go. That's the good news. It's not like a pass or fail. It's to turn towards, to change the way you think, to begin to view your life with victory and value. And as you do that, you'll start to see the testimony that you carry. I said it earlier. He wastes nothing. He gets you ready. Every one of you standing, you have a past with victory and value. There's victory. He wants you to do it again. But there's value even in the darkest moments because he's redeemer and he'll make them beautiful. So Father, I ask right now that you would release repentance to everyone standing. In other words, you'll change the way you think about your past. You'll just begin to change the way. And some of you will lie on your beds tonight and you'll remember your past more clearly than ever before. You won't immediately think regret and failure and should have and could have and why didn't I? You'll think, oh, How valuable is that? So Father, release this repentance without regret in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And then there's the future ones. The ones that when I started to talk, you were like, oh, fear, that's me. Fear is always creeping in. I told you about us, about us thinking about the future and knowing it was prophesied and and Sue saying, hey, he prophesied. He's got a plan. 
He prophesied to us in other ways. Our, our lives have taken different courses, to be perfectly honest. I, I worked in the prison service. I was heading to retire at 60 with everything tidied up. And I quit that job in my early 40s and trusted God. But he's prophesied. He keeps on saying this will happen and this will happen. And it cancels the fear. I can't afford to keep allowing that fear to live. I can't afford to imagine a future without God in it. He prophesied. He's already had a look. He already knew what, son, what job our son would have. He already knew. He'd seen it. If fear was your problem, I want to invite you to stand. And you can stand for all of them, just in case you're in any doubt. <laughs> you don't have to. I only want you to stand for what really matters. But I know some people think, I just did regret. Can I do fear as well? <laughs> The Apostle Paul, he, he, he wrote to Timothy, he said, my paraphrase, take the prophetic word and with it fight. Here's what a lot of us do. We take the prophetic word and with it we defend. We use the prophetic word to defend against fear instead of taking the prophetic word and removing the fear, knocking it out of the park, imagining you're holding a baseball bat and the fear's coming at you and you grab your bat and you knock that ball out of the park. You see, too often we, we use the prophetic word and we defend and we just like knock these little balls of fear off of us and we don't let them penetrate too far. But the truth is that we don't really step into our prophetic destiny. We're meant to take the prophetic word and use it to knock the fear out of the way and then step forward. And if you're crazy enough, grab a bat and start knocking that ball out of the park. Just give it a good swing. Just set that baseball bat ball thing at about 80 miles an hour and go whacking out of the park. Because Paul said to Timothy, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. He said, take the prophetic word. Go on, take it. Imagine it in your head. You know what's going to happen? Some of you tonight will lie on your beds and you will start to think of a prophecy and you won't be able to access the fear. You won't be able to access it because you'll think, no, the prophecy, he said, you might want to take my wife's little phrase. He prophesied. He has a plan. He prophesied. He has a plan. He's already seen your future. He's had a look. It's looking good, by the way. Because he's in it. You may be seated. And then there's those of you, when I started talking, you thought, ah, oh, yeah, that, that was me. That shame one. Shame, that's me. See, shame will tell you what you're not. And keep you from the one voice that can tell you who you are. I have two sons, so I have to read fairy stories and use them for preaching. Shame is really included in the story of Cinderella. Cinderella means the maid of the ashes. See, it's a name that told her what she wasn't. And the wicked stepsisters kept her from the father. Until the Holy Spirit or fairy godmother showed up. And took her to the ball and revealed to her who she truly was. You see, shame will tell you what you're not and keep you from the one voice that can tell you who you are. The fairy godmother, as it were, comes along and reclothes Cinderella. And, and really that's what needs to happen to all of us, that we get reclothed in our real identity. Sometimes we lose sight of it a little bit and we, we, we get given a little glimpse like the glass slipper that just reminds us just enough. Shame will tell you what you're not. I first really met shame personally for me when I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And the lie that I would 
be less of a man after my treatment. Women have a similar challenge with breast cancer, the menopause, ovarian cancer, things that would say you'll be less of when this has happened to you. People struggle with shame because the size of their house, the car they drive, the job they have, the color of their skin, the gender they are. Shame, these lying voices that tell us what we're not, that say we're less than, that say that we're a second-class believer. They're lies. And God's saying, where are you? I didn't tell you to put those clothes on. I didn't tell you to cover up. I got some new clothes for you to wear. If shame is your challenge, I want to invite you to stand. The good news is that shame is destroyed by authenticity. It's, it's destroyed by being vulnerable. It's destroyed by standing up. It was destroyed by not worrying about the person next to you thought you were standing up for. It's destroyed by standing up for all three and not being ashamed of standing up for all three and saying, I'm so hungry. I want to I get in that middle chair. I want to fully show up. Shame's destroyed by authenticity, by being real, by being vulnerable, by Adam going, hey, I'm here. It's destroyed. But the really extraordinary good news, I think, is that the Bible says, instead of shame, a double portion. And I, I struggled with that for a while. So I, what, how, what is that? How does that work? How can you do that? There's a psychological principle of projection. What that means is that what I think about me, I will project onto you that you think that about me. What it means is that then I will act in a way that you think I should act. In other words, I'll try and be Bill. Because I'm thinking you want Bill. What that means is you don't get me, but I don't get you. You see, instead of shame, a double portion. Instead of projecting onto you what I think about me, that's gone. And now I get all of you and you get all of me. That sounds like a double portion. You know, we do it to God as well. We'll project onto God that he thinks something about us. And we deal with shame and we get all of him and he gets all of us. So just begin to receive your double portion. Just receive that double portion. You see, you may be seated with your double portion. See, we're meant to sit in this chair, fully present, with our arm around our past, embracing our past, with our arm around our future, embracing our future, embracing our history, standing on our history, changing history. Nations have this problem. I'm a Brit. We have the most extraordinary history. But it's so easy for us to forget. Maybe to think, oh, the regret of the British Empire instead of remembering the Wesleys and the Whitfields, the Wilberforces. Instead of embracing our history, we're filled with regret and we're not standing on that history and changing history. We all do it. As family groups, as churches, as cities, regions, and nations. Tonight, it's probably more about people, individuals. You see, you need to put your arm around your past. And value your past and value the victories. Value the fact that God will redeem even the worst moments of your past. He'll make them valuable. That being fully present, showing up, having a present with me in it. And a future.
with God in it. This is where he's called us to live, to be fully present. Our God is a very present help in time of trouble. I love that worship these days, I mean, we've gone from a church that was a hymn prayer sandwich to a hymn and a few songs to a church in Bethel and a movement now that an hour doesn't quite seem enough of worshiping. But it's about the present. It's about learning to be present. And we owe the world a bride that's present, made up of individuals who embrace their history, embrace their past, are fully present and have chosen. We're going to build on our history. We're going to be history makers. So why don't you stand? Father, Father, we want to be present. We want to be fully present. We thank you for our past. We thank you for our testimonies. We thank you for our victory. We thank you that you redeem. It's who you are. It is impossible for you to touch a broken past and not make it valuable again. You're a redeemer. And you're a very present help in time of trouble. And Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, but pressing towards the great goal. We want to be present. We want to be present. A fully present people. Present for you. Present for each other. Present, present for the world. Father, I pray today that in every one of us something changes. And that we become those who are fully present. Pulling on the past and pressing into the future and giving you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.